Well, when you look back um, over history at different TV shows that have been popular at different periods throughout, it's, it's a very common thing to see that often some of the most popular television shows of each era, when you look over several decades, are shows that revolve around family. Right? When you think of several decades ago in some of the popular shows, we think of things like Brady Bunch or The Little House on the Prairie, and they're, they're things of family that they had. For a little bit later in life, maybe things come to mind like The Cosby Show or Full House or Family Matters. Or for the show that, that I wa- got to watch when I was a kid, and I remember it was special, Tuesday nights, I got to stay up past my bedtime to watch Home Improvement when I was a kid in the early 90s. With Tim, the tool man, Taylor, and the, the neighbor next door who you never got to see his face after years, right? And this is before Google Images. So we're like, what does he actually look like? Does he not have a mouth? Why is he always hiding behind his fence? But so often those shows, when we watch them in our formative years, we begin to think about that the kind of what's reflected on there is often in our culture what's reflected as the ideal family. Right? This is just what families look like. And we kind of see how family life has been portrayed um, throughout our time. Well, if, if we're going to put our story that we're going to look at tonight in a TV show, it wouldn't be like any of these. The story of Jacob's family is not the ideal family. In fact, our title for tonight's sermon is The Unideal Family. There is conflict, there is so much dysfunction all over the place, which I think is refreshing for us because if you come from a family that some people maybe think is ideal, what's your response is often like, you should see it when everyone else leaves, (laughs) right? Every family has some level of dysfunction. And we see this in in Jacob's family um, tonight. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you open them up to to the end of Genesis 29? We're going to start in verse 31 of 29. The main section will be um, in chapter 30 of the book of Genesis. We're in a series called Legacy, looking at the faith that Isaac and now his son Jacob have, have inherited from their father Abraham and now are living out and passing down beyond them. And we've, we've seen in the story of Jacob has revolved really around family conflicts. At first, it was between him and his brother Esau. That's going to come back in a couple weeks, in a couple chapters down the road. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at the story of Jacob and, and his uh, father-in-law Laban as they kind of bartered for Jacob's wives. And there was the whole trick thing, like he woke up, oh, this isn't the daughter I was supposed to marry. What happened? And Laban's like, oh, my bad. Stay work another seven years. Their conflict is going to come up again next week as we look. But tonight we enter into the conflict in the family between these two sisters who both have married Jacob. We look at the conflict tonight that revolves around Leah and her sister Rachel. Leah and her sister Rachel. One of the key promises that God made to Jacob, that he made also to his father Abraham and to his grandfather um, Abraham, was for, for three things, for blessing, for land, and for offspring. And we're going to see tonight the fulfillment of this third promise of offspring truly coming to pass as God is working through even the dysfunction of this family to bring about his ultimate purpose. So if you have your Bibles, in Genesis chapter 29, let's actually flip back to, to the last verse we ended with last week. Verse 30 says this, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. 
Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It says here that, that, that Leah was hated. Now, for, for us, that, that comes across in a very strong word. What, what scholars think is most likely they're just saying the opposite of the strong affection and love that was true for Rachel. Jacob didn't feel that towards Leah. So this isn't our relationship. This isn't our modern conception in the United States of hate. But if there, it's more kind of a disinterest. It's not a, a high preference for her, certainly not in comparison to Rachel. But what's interesting is over all this story that we're going to look at tonight, notice what leads with it, when the Lord saw. See, ultimately, all of this is playing into God's greater purpose. None of this is outside his control. He sees and he's over all of these things. And so God, in light of what he's seen, he opens the womb of Leah, but Rachel is barren. And in their time, often the, the being able to give birth was seen as an important thing, not only for that, but they both knew that Jacob probably was promised by God for great offspring. So they knew that they had an important role to play in that. Verse 32, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. The name Reuben is a double Pun, there's a double meaning to the name Reuben. First, it's that, that seen is the idea, that God has seen me. I have been seen in my distress. But the end of his name is a play on the word love. And we see that Leah is hoping that by the one who's providing children for Jacob, she not only is providing children, what is she ultimately looking for? She's looking for her husband's affection and love. And she's hoping that because she's the one providing children for him, that she will win his love. So there's the firstborn, Reuben. Next, we have this in verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon, whose, whose name means heard or heard by God. And she, she realizes that the God is hearing her cries and she's thinking to herself, Will, will a second son Finally, give me the love and affection that I'm desiring and looking for. Verse 34. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi, whose name means attached or joined to someone. She's thinking, now he has to love me. I've given him three sons, and my sister Rachel still hasn't given him any kids. Surely I am winning his love now. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she called his name Judah, who means he will be praised. Then she ceased bearing. Notice what we don't see happen. We don't see Jacob's affections turning towards Leah. We don't see her, Jacob's affections turning towards her. But Leah begins to, see, to understand and to see something that's true in verse 31, that God saw her where she was. And as we look at the, the difficult situations that both Leah and Rachel find themselves in, today we're going to look at three lessons that we can find from this passage for difficult times. And the first is this, that God sees your pain. 
God sees your pain. Leah felt like no one close to her saw her. Her husband didn't see her for who she was. He didn't love her for who she was. She felt alone and isolated, but she was beginning to see that God saw her pain. And in the midst of her pain, an amazing thing is that God starts to fulfill his promises that he has made to his people. And that through this, God is fulfilling the promises that he has made to them. This would have been an especially promising thing to the people who were wandering in Israel when this book was written by Moses and given to them. Because here's God fulfilling his promises to the people of Israel when they're not even in the land yet. And they would have also said, God will still be faithful to us even as we wander and wait to enter into the land. God is fulfilling his promises through this. But God sees the pain that Leah was in. It reminds me of so many of the Psalms, and we read one of them tonight. Another one that came to mind for me this week was Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, which says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. There are so many verses in the Bible, especially throughout the Psalms, that talks about God's attention and his care for those who feel cast down and in pain, who feel neglected and hurt by others, that God sees their pain. An article that I was reading this week says, what, what does God say to us in our tears? What does God say to us in our tears? I wish that if you were here tonight and you weren't a follower of Jesus, I'd say, well, just become a Christian and you won't have any more pain. But that's not how life goes. And if you've walked with God for any journey at all, you know that it's certainly not exempt from pain. And in this room tonight, we have experienced, I'm sure, a variety of pains. For some of us, we have broken relationships with the people who matter most to us in our lives. For some of us, we've experienced death of people who are close to us. For others, it's the insecurity of of illness in our families or of job situations. There is so much pain if we went around and just heard the stories of each and every person in this room tonight. So what does God say to those in their tears? What does God say to us in in our pain? This article I thought so helpful. He says four things. He says, first, God sees your tears. God sees your tears, as is so often seen throughout Scripture, that God is a God who doesn't tell us to stop crying, but that he sees us where we are in our brokenness. Second, that God cares about our tears. God cares about our sorrows and the hurts and the pains in our lives. But then he shifts and he looks at the promises that the Bible has for us. And he says the Bible promises that God will ultimately take our tears and turn them into joy. That God will take our tears. He promised this to his disciples right as he was about to go to the cross. That he would take their tears and turn them into joy. And ultimately, we look forward to the end of the Bible in Revelation where God says that with his people, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Even in heaven, God will still see our pain, but he'll be there present with us. My friends, God is a God who's present for us even in the difficult and hard situations of life. When God is silent, it doesn't mean that he is absent. God sees your pain. I just want you to know tonight that whatever burden is on your heart as you came in here tonight, God sees it. 
God sees it and he cares about it. He cares about you. Don't let the burdens of life, the hardships that you have gone through, prevent you from seeing that God still loves you and he still cares for you. Chapter 30, verse 1. The first section says that God saw what Leah had done. Now it shifts perspectives to Rachel. Verse 1, when Rachel saw that she, being Leah, bore, or excuse me, herself, bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. All right, we would have assumed that rivalry was soon to come, and now we know that the rivalry is here. So she said to Jacob in a demanding way, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld you the fruits of the womb? This is an audacious demand from Rachel. And Jacob's like, listen, it's not just up to me. Ultimately, their perspective was this was God's doing. Remember Jacob's family history on how children were provided. His grandpa, Abraham, was 100 years old before his grandma, Sarah, was able to have kids. Right? They saw the same with, with his father, um, Isaac, and his mom, um, Rebecca, excuse me. And they're waiting for 20 years before him and his brother were born. He understands that it's not always just up to them, but ultimately God is doing something. And he responds in anger to her. What do you expect me to do? What do you want me to do about it? But she has her own solution. She has her own solution. Verse 3, then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. That, that phrase, give birth on my behalf, or it sometimes even says on my knees, is a, is a metaphor for saying it was a custom in their time that if a woman couldn't give birth, that their servant could go in, would bear their child, and then that woman would raise it as her own. It was a custom that we did. We saw in the story last fall of Sarah doing the same thing with her servant Hagar, thinking that this is how God would provide. But Rachel's motivated by envy, and so she sends Bilhah to Jacob. Verse 4, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan means judged or vindicated one. Continues, verse 7. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali means one who struggled or wrestled. This is kind of a precursor to another wrestling that's going to happen in just one or two chapters later. But it's not um, Rachel doing the wrestling. It's her husband, Jacob, who will be wrestling. But she sees everything from a human perspective. And she thinks, because I've given my servant Bilhah to you, that I've won. Right? I've won. I now have two kids of my own. I kind of have won this competition, Leah. Take that. Right? I not be able to have kids, but take that. I've won. I have two kids now through my servant. Verse 9. When Leah saw. Right? So first Rachel saw in verse 1. Now Leah's seeing things. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. She's thinking, anything you can do, I can do better. 
right? Like, okay, you have a smart idea. Watch this. Here we go. She took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Gad, whose name means good fortune. Leah's servant, in verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she named his name Asher, which means happy or blessed by God. And so Leah thinks, all right, well, you're going to do that. I'm going to do the same thing. And so she's now thinking, well, now I've won, right? The competition between the two just keeps going back and forth between them. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, who's the oldest, went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, when you read this like I do, you're like, mandrakes. I'm like, what, was that like Rachel's favorite food? Like it is like if you come in with ice cream and I'm like, please give me that ice cream, right? Like I really want that. Please, what do you want for that? Is this just some craving she has? What's going on with mandrakes? Mandrakes, by the way, are, are a, a fruit that would grow. Its roots are kind of looks like human legs almost. They kind of like stick out like human legs. And it has a yellow-red fruit. I have Wikipedia just like you do. I don't know this naturally, all right? A, a yellow-red fruit that's about the size and shape of a plum, all right? So it's a small, small fruit. But it was known or thought throughout that time, kind of legend had it not only in here, but we see in other ancient Near East sources, that it was something that increased desire and fertility amongst people. And so she's thinking, all right, well, it hasn't worked. Nothing's worked but the mandrakes. Maybe that will finally get me kids, The mandrakes are her avenue to manipulate God to set this whole situation up and to get kids. It's interesting, the only other time that mandrakes are talked about in in the Bible is in the Song of Solomon. They're referenced in a scene depicting love as the culmination of a marriage. And mandrakes are mentioned in a scene there. And so she's now trying to take matters into her own hands. So she's saying, give me some of those mandrakes. Verse 15. But Leah said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? You sense any bitterness or animosity there, right? This is not the ideal family situation. She says, would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he being Jacob, he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And so she strikes a deal. Jacob, who's always the one striking a deal, now his wife, like him, is the one who goes out and strikes a deal to try and help herself. Verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in with me tonight, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. If that sounds crass, it's supposed to right? We don't know, right? There's so much here that we don't know about Leah and Rachel and Jacob's relationship, right? But it seems as if Rachel kind of runs everything, right? Like she's kind of stolen Jacob away and Leah is bitter and resentful towards him. We don't know, does Jacob like never go and visit Leah? We don't know, but it seems to be as if it's very rare that that he predominantly stays with Rachel and Leah comes out as basically like, I've bought you. You have to come with me tonight. Jacob 
goes at the end of verse 16. So he lay, so he went and he laid with her that night. If Jacob kind of sounds like a passive pawn in this, in the scheme, that's how he's supposed to come across. Right? He doesn't come across here as some great hero of the faith, some father for us all to look up to and to exemplify his actions and behaviors. He's kind of just taking a step back, trying not to get shot as the arrows are flying back and forth between the two people. So Leah goes and he, she has Jacob come to her again. Verse 17, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. She called his name Issachar. It's my, my wages have been rewarded. Wages are a thing and that come up a lot throughout the Jacob story that was negotiated in the series last week that we talked about on, on how long he had to work. We're going to see wages come up again next week as Jacob and Laban have conflict again. Wages comes up again here as well. Verse 19, and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. It's another like Reuben, another double pun. It means both endowed greatly and also honored. The name Zebulun does. Verse 21. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. The second truth that we see in this passage, the second truth is that God knows our plans. God knows our plans. Rachel thought that she could move things around, that she could trick it, that she could set up, she could work the system to allow God to owe her a favor that it would eventually come to her. And God's up in heaven like, no, you're not. You're not going to pull games. You're not going to pull a fast one past God and catch him off guard like he now owes us something. God is someone who will not be manipulated. Have you ever met someone who's a good manipulator? Oftentimes, that's a bad thing. But sometimes for bosses, it can actually be said it's a good thing. One of the, um, one of the most fascinating people, I think, in modern history is uh, Steve Jobs. And when, upon his passing, I bought the, the biography that came, out about, that came out about him, and I read it, I think it was about two or three years ago. And in this biography, I was reading something that apparently had been talked about before, but I never stood it. It said that people who worked with Steve Jobs realized that he lived in what's called a reality distortion field. A reality distortion field. Basically meaning he had such a sense of charisma and motivation that if you worked for him, he made you think that you could do anything in the world. And you would literally kill yourself working hundreds of hours of overtime a month to get to that point to accomplish to the purpose. And people who worked for him said he was an amazing innovator, amazing leader, but he was awful sometimes to work for because he would just run people to the ground because he had such an idea and how he was going to twist everyone to get his way to what he wanted to get to, to the end. Sometimes, I think in our relationship with God, whether we realize it or not, we try and do things to manipulate God at times. We try and do things in our lives to try and manipulate God. Maybe some of you are here tonight at church on a Sunday night because you think, if I go Sunday night, God owes me. God's got to give me something. 
I hope that's not why you're here, but for some of us, it may be. It's even maybe why we do acts of service. It's maybe even why some people give money to charitable causes and give money to the church because they think, well, if I give money to the church, then I ask for it from God. He owes me. He's got to give it back to me. Friends, we cannot manipulate God. I recalled as I was preparing this this week a story um, that that one of our senior pastors from many years ago, um, R.A. Torrey, said. And he said that he was out traveling speaking one time when a man slipped him a note right before he was about to get up onto the platform to speak. And it was kind of the last thing he opened and pulled out right before he went up. And on it, it was a note from someone at the church, and they wanted to know why God didn't answer their prayer. And the guy said, listen, I've been attending this church faithfully for decades. I've been a deacon. I've taught Sunday school for the kids. I've even been the Sunday school superintendent. Why isn't God answering my prayer? And he got up and he started his talk by reading that question. He says, I'll tell you why God won't answer your prayer. Because you think God owes you something because of what you've done for him. That our subtle, our subtle attitudes at times can be like, God owes me. Look at all that I've done for him. Look at the time I've spent, the money I've given, the hours that I've served. God owes me. Friends, God doesn't owe us anything. He knows the plans of our hearts. What's so difficult about this is the things that we often try and manipulate God with are good things done for the wrong reasons. They're good things that are done for the wrong reasons. Friends, God knows our plans, but God is God and we are not. He will not be manipulated by our plans, by our schemes. No matter what Rachel tried to do with the mandrakes, with everything else, she couldn't manipulate and control God to her advantage. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. That line, then God remembered, is a significant phrase in the Old Testament. We first see it in Genesis chapter 8 during the flood when it says, then God remembered Noah. And it's a huge turn, of course. It's a signifying that something huge is going to shift. We see it in Genesis 19 when God remembers Abraham and Lot and saves them from Sodom. The next time we see it after this is in Exodus chapter 2 where God's people are crying out in bondage. And it says, then God remembered his people Israel. God remembered is a sign that something is extreme, something is going to change, that God's going to do something. Verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and he opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Joseph, whose name is a double pun, again, whose name both means that he's removed, being that God has removed his reproach, but also added, looking forward to that she has the hope that she will have another son born to her as well. You may wonder why in verse 21 that Dinah is included in this passage. If it's all sons, why is Dinah in there? Well, there's a few reasons. First, she's going to come up again in a few chapters. I believe it's chapter 34. We're going to see Dinah plays a major role in the story. But it's also this, that this book was written by Moses to God's people as they were leaving the land of Egypt and about to enter into the promised land. 
How many kids were born from chapter 29, verse 31, to the end of our passage here today? If you count them up, there's 12. How many tribes of Israel leave the land of Egypt? There's 12. Right? And that's why Dinah is mentioned here because it shows that God's plan to provide for his people has started to become true. That God is providing for them. What we see here in this last thing where God remembers Rachel and listened to her is this final reminder, this final truth for us to hold on to in difficult times is this. God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. When it says that God listened to her, it wasn't like the, the idea there isn't that after all this difficulty, Rachel decided to start to pray. With it, she had been consistently coming to God over and over and over again. And this is a final thing that God answered her after a long time of praying. Now, I don't know about you, but there's weeks in my life where I feel that are exceptionally busy. What do you think God's week this last week has been like? Right? I think it, pales, it makes our schedule pale in comparison to everything God has going on as he rules and controls the entire universe. And sometimes we think that because God is so busy that we shouldn't bother him with the things going on in our lives. Sometimes we think God is a father to us who will just kind of push us away because he's got other things to do. Maybe kind of like this father who went viral on a video this last year. Do we have it? Wait for it. Do we have the scandals video? Scandals happen all the time. Scandals happen all the time. The question is how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, and what will it mean for, uh, for the wider region? I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, <laughs> shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. <laughs> the, um, pardon me. <laughs> pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> What is this going to be for the region? My apologies. North, uh, sorry. Um, North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited in the last six months to a year. Because the moral of the story, if you have an important Skype interview, lock your office door. Right, as his kids come barging in on him mid-thing. Mid it, it's such a funny video. But I think for, for me so often, I think I, my tendency at times is to think, man, God's so busy. When I come to him, he's just going to be like, got something else going on. Right, like get back, get back. I, I'm running the universe right here. Get your little problems of your life behind me. Right? I have more important things. God will never push us away. If you're a child of God and you're a follower of Jesus, God will never push us away. God never has something better to do than to listen to his children. And that's you and that's me. God always wants us to come to him. In fact, that's one of the most amazing things if we are Christians about our salvation Ephesians chapter 2 says this, that through him, through Jesus, we both, both Jews and Gentiles, everyone together has access in one spirit to the Father. It's held up throughout the New Testament as one of the most amazing things about being a follower of God is that now, in the midst of everything going on in our world, that you right now 
can approach the ruler of the universe, the God who created all things and sustained all things, that right now, if you're his child, he will pause everything to listen to you. God hears our prayers. We see it here in the life of Rachel. And as we stop to think about our own lives, I think we can start to look back and see how God has heard our prayers. He hasn't necessarily answered them how we've always wanted, but he's always heard our prayers. What do you need to come to God with tonight? What do you need to come to God with tonight? He wants you to come to him. What burden in your life are you trying to carry on your own? What sin in your life are you trying to fix without confessing to him? What are you trying to do tonight that you need God to help you with? What burden do you need to take to the cross? Whatever it is tonight, I want you to know that the moment that God's children come to him in prayer, he drops everything to cast his gaze upon us. God hears our prayer. Whatever it is that God has going on in your life tonight, I just want to remind you, God sees your pain. He knows what you're going through. He knows your plans. If you're trying to manipulate God to get something, he sees that you're not going to manipulate him. But God hears our prayers. And he loves it when his children come to him and pray. Let's go ahead and bow, bow your heads, close your eyes. And I would just challenge you, take a few moments in the silence here. Take a few moments just to pray to our Father in heaven. The creator of the world is pausing to listen to his children right now. Take a few moments and I'll close us in prayer. God, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer, that you see us, you know us, you love us. God, would you heal the hurts and the pain in our lives? Would we be able to come to you in prayer? And we thank you that we can, knowing that you're good to us and you will always hear us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.